Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by Lucas Oil, TireRack.com, and RockAuto.com. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Thank you, Alec Webb, and welcome to everybody uh, to MotorWeek Podcast number 275. I am John Davis, and we're coming to you from Studio C at MotorWeek World Headquarters for the first time in over two years. Our podcasts are back at our home, and we're delighted to have you with us. And uh, on this particular podcast, we are graced with the presence of Brian Robinson, Greg Carlos, and Jessica Ray. And we're going to start off the show with three EVs. But stay tuned for later in this podcast because we're going to talk about something that if you're a car collector and you envy all the other vehicles around the world that we can't get here, you're going to be interested in our discussion of what's known as the 25-year rule about importing vehicles from other countries. But starting off, three EVs, and we're going to begin with what is uh, easily the big daddy of them all. Hmm. Our two-wheeling reporter, Brian Robinson, has been four-wheeling in the 2022 GMC Hummer EV. Brian... What is it that more than big? Well, it's it's interesting. I feel like we've given all the info, so I don't know how much to give. But uh, 329 miles is the range. Uh, uh, that's the their final number. Um, it's essentially a platform of batteries uh, with a front and rear axle uh, grafted onto that. <laughs> so um, the uh, overhangs are, are super uh, short. Looks similar to the old Hummer, a modernized version of that. Um, driving it, it's, it's unlike any vehicle I've ever driven. I haven't driven the Rivian or the Lightning, so I can't really compare it to them. But uh, it's so fast. Uh, it's so smooth, uh, just the ride and the powertrain, and then it's just insane off-road. We spent almost all of our time driving off-road. We were just outside of Phoenix. We just did like an hour on the highway to get to a public trail. It wasn't stuff that they had crafted mm. to highlight the vehicle. We were just on a public trail. Wow. There were there were other uh, trucks and motorcycles and ATVs out there. And it's, um, it's so wide. It didn't have any problems. Yeah, well, that was it is definitely wide. We did a little uh, tree trimming on some of the trails, but... The thing is so maneuverable because it's got the rear wheel steer, right. and so you you could take like turns you would not that you would struggle with in a Wrangler. That thing would just whoop whip whip right through. Uh, it was it was a blast, and we had plenty of range to like I say drive an hour of highway off road all day and then drive an hour back. So uh, uh, it's it's impressive. I would say the, the other other than the maneuverability on the trail, the big takeaway I think was how little. Of attention attract, uh, attracted. I was really surprised. Really? Driving it around Phoenix, I was expecting everyone just to go crazy. Uh, people didn't really pay any attention to it at all. I mean, there's lifted trucks out there everywhere, so I don't know. That's it. There's white vehicle. All the vehicles were white, which they all are in Phoenix. So I don't know. People just weren't noticing it, but uh, it didn't really attract uh, a whole lot of attention like I was expecting. Do you, do you think it's because it just looked like a, a Hummer? Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure to be honest with I you. I mean, I turn not. and look at any hum of their. Yeah. I was gonna say it's like very imposing. Like it's yeah. it's. I'm looking forward to when we have it here, so I can like just stand next to it and mm. see how large it is in person. Uh, 
<laughs> I'd be curious if you did like a, a social experiment with like a traditional Hummer, an old Hummer, and then like drive by the same group of people with the new Hummer and see which uh, one gets yeah, more yeah. attention. Because like, is it? I mean, I've seen it. It's very obvious what it is. Like, I'm just that's that's an interesting point you made there. I just can't believe people aren't at least taking a double take yeah. this thing. But, but you know, I drove it for maybe 15 minutes on some. 35 mile an hour roads up in uh, near Detroit uh, last October. And I didn't get a single look either. And I don't know why, but I just sort of said, well, you're in, in Detroit. There's a lot of Hummers probably on the roads up here. But isn't that interesting yeah. that we've all been sort of like, wow, that's big. But uh, we got to check out all the cool features, the WTF, uh, Watch the Freedom, and uh, the Crab Walk, um, all that stuff. It all works amazing. The Watch the Freedom, it's insane, the power that it puts down. Explain and, that, what that is. Uh, it's just max acceleration. I don't know how long it goes for. They had a very short range uh, that they would let us do it. You can get to 60 in three seconds, mm. and then we had to jam on the brakes. So Eight, Was it 8,000 pounds? 9, yeah, yeah 8,000 pounds. Seconds? Yeah. Um, and then the brakes will stop it just as quickly. Uh, so it's, you know, GM's clearly done their homework on it. They turn it around quick. Everything about it is very impressive. But, but I'm sure it's like other EVs where once you get – Past that 60, I imagine that acceleration kind of tapers off, but I don't know. What circumstances do the – this is a two-part question, by the way, huh? Mr. Robinson. <laughs> uh, what circumstances does the crab walk feature work in, and did they say, like, what it would be useful for other than off-roading? Is it, like, just an off-roading thing, or do they even try to say, like – Parking. Yeah, parking in a city setting. Yeah, um – I'm not going to say it's a gimmick because it is useful, but you have to look for ways to be useful. I'm sure something will come up where it will be useful, but yeah, basically you can just not quite parallel because the rears only turn, I think, up to 10 degrees. But um, yeah, you can pretty much get around things. Some people used it out on the trail. They found a reason uh, to. Uh, they had a little exercise set up in a parking lot for us when we first got there where we got to try it out. Uh, it works really well, and it's... It's easy to engage. It's not something you got to menu search for. There's a button right there. Uh, but it only works up to, I think, 20 miles an hour. So uh, it's I, I feel like that's kind of fast. That. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of fast. <laughs> but it, think of a 20 mile an hour crab if we're running across <laughs> the it is. It's definitely a different experience when you get it maxed out. You know, you're cranking the wheel left, but you don't get the sensation of turning left, just the entire vehicle sliding we, left. Yeah, uh, we should try to set up a specific slalom test when we get one in Wait, for testing. Yeah, like make for, it, make so, this yeah. Slalom, put the cones about well, 100 feet apart. Yeah, or something. let's do something different or with that. feet or something like that. Um, gosh. That Ultium, Ultium platform yeah. that they're using, did they, they've been real coy about what the potential is that. I mean, we've heard numbers thrown around like 500, 600. Did they give you any idea about what they're going to grow that range to? Not really. They just uh, talked about the modularness of it. Uh, like the SUV version of the Hummer just has one row of batteries taken out. Now you have a shorter wheelbase, mm. same exact vehicle. I think the Cadillac's probably uh, the same way. No, they talked a lot about the. It's in a. It can operate either parallel. Uh, for max power and max charging uh, quickness, or in series, mm -hmm. which uh, would extend the range and take longer to charge. It can instantly uh, switch back and forth between the two. They talked a lot about that. Um, I'm not sure if they could stack any more to add more range in there. Just make um, it taller. Yeah, all the edition ones are already sold out, um, but you can order. They got three other versions coming, starting as low as 80 grand. 
One more question about yes. uh, crab walk. How difficult is it to switch on and off? Is it just a switch? No, yep. There's like an off-road uh, mode selector yeah. knob, and then there's a button on top of it for crab walk. That's, and you, that's easy. Yeah. So wow. now let's go from something that what starting price was one ten for the edition ones. And they're going to have an eighty thousand dollar base model yeah. at some point. Yep. Let's go from that to something that's more within the realm of most people that can afford uh, vehicles, and that is uh, Toyota's, uh, gosh, first real modern EV, the Toyota BZ4X. Before you even start and tell us what that actually is, why that name? I'm glad you asked that question. That's what I was going to lead <laughs> off with. I thought it was the brand name of your water bottle. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> full disclosure, they gave me a water bottle, which I am currently drinking from right now. Hold on. Ah, that's good BZ4X water. So what does BZ4X stand for? Uh, BZ stands for Beyond Zero, and that's kind of like the real marketing term of like how they approach electrification. I can't even really describe it. They had all this marketing jargon. Essentially, if you see BZ on a Toyota, that means it's electric. It's mm -hmm. their sub-brand. You get to four, which um, correlates to the size of the vehicle. Uh, doesn't mean four passenger, doesn't mean four seater. They just said this is the size of the vehicle. So this BZ4X is what they consider number four. Uh, they can go up would be a bigger one, but, uh, down would be a smaller one. And you uh, would call this a compact? <clears throat> This is a this is a compact because it's actually very close to the size of a Rav4 and actually a little bigger. It's uh, longer, wider, um, and a little bit a little shorter. Uh, and then to the X uh, that denotes um, SUV. So if you see in the few, you can't just call this like the Toyota BZ because there's actually going to be more of them with different letters different and letters. numbers. So BZ4X means an electric um, compact crossover essentially. And uh, like you said, John, um, a little bit cheaper than the Hummer. Uh, it starts at forty-two grand. Um, that's before any incentives. That's before incentives, before destination, and all that. Um, uh, but I, I do think it's good that they made their longest-range model, which will be two hundred fifty-two miles of EV driving range, is their base model. It's the front-wheel drive version uh, XLE trim. They only have two trims, XLE and Limited. So if you want the most range, you get the cheapest. BZ4X, uh, like I said, is around $42,000. All-wheel drive, you can add to either XLE or uh, limited trim. Uh, it's only two grand, which Toyota seems to package all-wheel drive and like hybrids if you're talking about electrification very nicely, because two grand is actually not that big of a deal when you talk. If you look at ID4, I think it's closer to four grand, the Volkswagen electric to all-wheel drive. two grand not only adds all-wheel drive, but obviously adds a second motor. Adds a second motor. So, like I said, uh, in contrast to the ID4, which is its competition, and we'll we'll say maybe Kia EV6, uh, Hyundai Ionic 5. Uh, this is front wheel drive. Those other ones are, are rear wheel drives. This one's front wheel drive. If you want all wheel drive, they'll add the second motor in the back. You get a little more horsepower. Uh, zero to 60 with that comes uh, at around six and a half seconds, as opposed to like seven seconds for. The front-wheel drive version, so you do get a little bit more performance with all-wheel drive in addition to having more traction. And it's a slightly bigger battery, and I'm talking uh, like 1.4 kilowatt hours bigger than the front-wheel drive. So, um, it's kind of weird. Yeah, it's a little bit interesting that they offer you know two different batteries between front-wheel drive. Well, they're not different. It's just slightly bigger for the all-wheel drive. Usually there's more of a uh, differentiation, but anyway. Yeah, so. but basically, so the entry-level one is uh, 71.4 kilowatt hours. 
Um, uh, but to the styling, though, I've, I've heard quite a few comments, and they're generally negative from the, uh, the general public. <laughs> Shocker. I don't uh, know the, the, the comments I, I that don't, we got. I don't like agree with them. I, I, think it looks, I think it looks very nice. I think you can argue that maybe the, the, the black cladding around the, um, the wheel wells could, could off-put some people. Uh, but I think it looks very modern. I think it looks closer to what Lexus is offering than than uh, I, Toyota. I would is agree right with now. that. I think that's an a, a great observation. More, uh, like I said, it's lower than a Rav Four, so it's like a low slung, more of like a raised hatchback than an SUV. But inside, you get the benefits of extra legroom. Uh, I sat in the back. The, the headroom's okay. Uh, the legroom, I think, is what really impresses. Yeah, but so you're six six three, so okay. it's it's. Um, I think the side without having jumped into a RAV4 and then the BZ4X, I can't say uh, definitively, but it felt to me very similar. And I don't think you're going to be worried about space uh, in this vehicle. Um, but like I said, yeah, uh, so it's, it is an EV. The front end um, just drops down. There's no grill or anything. There's no need for a grill. Uh, so I, I think it's a very nice looking. If you, if you want to compare it to something, it's probably closer to like a. I would say an N, uh, Lexus NX than a, um, mm. than a RAV4 in terms of... I would like to compare it with something, Greg. Go ahead. <laughs> compare it to whatever you'd like. So uh, this is another vehicle that Toyota partnered with Subaru with. Correct. So there's a Subaru version called the Solterra. Did, how differently do they look? Do you know? Um, I haven't done a lot of looking at the yeah. Solterra. I, I've briefly glanced at it, and there's an obvious relationship there. Yeah. And the interior is almost exactly the same. That, the, I've, I've seen more of the Subaru version, and it looks like a Toyota. So, mm -hmm. yeah. um, I will note that the um, when you do go to all-wheel drive, they actually have now Subaru's uh, branded X-Mode. Like that is in the Toyota now, so it's. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, you have, there's varying uh, modes within like all-wheel drive uh, that can give you more traction, less traction, however you need it. Um, in terms of driving, uh, I thought it was probably one of the more quiet EVs because you get a little bit of a mixed bag with EVs. Um, some of them aren't silent. A lot of people assume they are, and that's not always the case. This one, even in the two-motor setup, they did a really nice job taking out the electric motor noise, which is usually like a, an electric whir. Mm. Um, I didn't hear it at speeds below like 40 miles per hour. And then when like you really get on it, you hear it. But even then, it's not bad. Road and wind noise is great. Interesting thing um, was the uh, regenerative braking. A lot of EVs like to use the one-pedal driving mode, at least give you the option for it. And Toyota said, nope, we're not doing that at all. You have a regenerative boost mode, uh, which will increase regenerative braking when you let off the gas, or I'm sorry, the accelerator. <laughs> um, you'll, uh, the motors will start spinning backwards, charging the, uh, the battery, and you'll feel it slowing you down, but it will not bring you down to a stop because Toyota's like, we don't want that, and we don't think our customers want that. And I thought that was odd, because why wouldn't you just give me the option to have it? I'm somebody right. who does like one-pedal driving. Hmm. Uh, but the good news is, is if you don't want any of that, uh, you can just turn that regenerative boost mode off, and you let go, let, let off the accelerator, and you just coast. So there's definitely an advantage to that, which, uh, like, for power purposes, one of the engineers was like, I kind of hate regenerative braking because, like, you're kind of fighting yourself in terms of acceleration. It throws you forward if it's not done well. Yeah, but um, uh, for Toyota's first real um, national EV, they did have the RAV4, like, in 97 mm -hmm. and 2011. Yeah. They were it, was like kind of, it was kind of an experiment. Yeah, uh, it wasn't all their system. I think that had, like, Tesla stuff uh, in it, did it? Yeah. 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 Did. So I think it's a very good effort. Um, I, 
I think it's exactly what Toyota wanted. I think it's exactly what you'd expect from a Toyota EV. There's a little bit of uh, maybe some, I don't know, some to be desired for the all-wheel drive limiteds range, which is down to like 222. Mm. It's not the longest range EV, um, but it's very competitive, I think, and it's it's priced well. And uh, I'm, the the warranty I'll, I'll finish with was um, eight years, one hundred thousand miles on the battery, which it's again they, they 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 say is very competitive. Hmm. You me? Oh no, sorry. Well, I you Jen. Well, I was actually going to say, um, Greg was really on a roll She's there. unusually quiet today. <laughs> I, was, I was instructed to stop and let people talk, and I just blew right through it. <laughs> well, no, I think like in the beginning, you'd, you'd mentioned that, um, you know, the, the difference between all-wheel drive and, and not all-wheel drive was like $2,000 or something like that. Yeah. Well, I drove the EV6, and it's a difference of like $10,000 mm-hmm. to upgrade to a dual-motor all-wheel drive setup. Yeah. So. Um, and no, it sounds like Toyota knows what they're talking about. And it's available next month. That's on my last comment. Oh, yeah. Next well, month it'll be hitting dealerships. You're sitting there and you're this brand that's known for hybrids and fuel economy, and you look like you've been late to the party, and here they show up with a highly competitive, very well-priced EV that's going to be you know available to a lot more people certainly than a, a Hummer. And they're coming in at a time when the market's just sort of exploding because of all the high gas prices so it's you know whatever way you i mean i'm sure it all wasn't planned this way but it's like the right vehicle at the right time yeah yeah people the public generally in america trust toyota that's something else might be one that the quality aspect of the brand is so strong it's probably going to make that thing sell out. I just feel like it. No, you're going to walk into a dealership and not a single person's going to know what what how to say the name of the car there's like, I just want that electric Toyota. Yeah, it doesn't this is a bar for yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> I, the biz My for explanation, X. I don't want people to construe as a, uh, as so, that I'm for the name. I think it actually <laughs> does not roll off the, the tongue. BZ4X. Well. Yeah. And it's like the uppercase and lowercase. Yeah, yeah. It's a little funky. It's horrible. To t- I've been writing the script and I'm trying to be, you know, uh, accurate with my, because it goes to um, closed captioning. Right. Yes. So I'm trying to type out lowercase b. Uppercase Z, four uppercase. Good luck. X. Just gonna have to do copy paste the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Think about Quattro every time you see an Audi with Quattro, yeah. it's supposed to be all caps and never is. Well, Jessica, since you mentioned the EV6, why don't you talk about that? That was in recently, and I have to say, another very impressive and reasonably priced EV. We have, we haven't tested. Well, I have. I've driven. Oh, you've driven it. Oh. Yes. Wow. <laughs> you've dri- you've driven coming. all the EVs. Why are we even uh, on this thing? Disclosure <laughs> as part of the North American Car of the Year Award uh, competition last year. They brought everything out. So we all got very brief driving time in it. But we've driven the Ionic 5. Yes. It's very, very similar. It's so. its cousin, I right. guess, if you could, uh, if you want to uh, classify its relationship as that. They're built on the same platform. They look very, very different though um, they're definitely different enough that I think uh, if you there there are probably things that people like about the EV6 more and there's going to be things that people like about the Ionic 5 more um, the Ionic 5 obviously we've talked about it before it's very uh, modular very square it's very it's very old SUV ish yes and it's if you like uh, like old Jeep Cher- yeah, Cherokees and stuff yeah. Brian you're 
Uh, I don't know. That whole front end with uh, like the pixelated lights and all. I guess, uh, I guess that's, is that what you're referring to? With yeah. That? yeah. When it lights up, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure. I mean, it's cool. So, but, but the EV6 is like, it's hard to really pin down exactly what it is. I guess you would kind of classify it as like a half, like, kind of like sports car looking like hatchback thing i don't it's well, called it an suv they just, call yeah. it an That's suv marketing. they do yeah. they call yeah. it an suv just call it a crossover at one point we actually did call a i think a chevy avalanche a crossover so right that really yeah. we did Cause, yeah because it was a crossover between an old school suv and a pickup truck yeah. and that's yeah so we can call the EV6 a crossover, but but so they did they did market it to us as an SUV, and it does have a lot of utility. But I drove it in California on some of those twisty mountain roads, and it drove way more like a sports car than than any crossover that I've ever driven. This is uh, specifically the GT or all of them. I drove the GT line. Okay, it's not the GT. A GT version is coming. All right. Uh, the more GT. Confusion. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Kia. Every why? Kia. <laughs> why? <laughs> Uh, but was it more than just the weight, though? We all know that, that almost every EV we've had, if not every EV, has handled pretty well because you've got such a low center of gravity. Right. But did you feel that you were driving something more than just a weight? Yeah. Oh, because I felt like it had a really good balance because it didn't feel like it was very heavy. Mm. I, I, I mean, you're, you felt very, very steady on a lot of like the, the curves and the turns and, and such but I definitely didn't feel like it was heavy and that I was being like dragged to the ground which sometimes I mean I remember the first time I got in an ID4 that's how I felt I was like I really can feel like the the battery in this car and that's not necessarily a bad thing but um I really enjoyed it in the in the EV6 and you have so many options too with with this uh with the EV6 you have a base light model you got the wind model a GT line and then you eventually there's going to be a GT which is going to be I think 576 horsepower which I drove the the GT line all-wheel drive so it's got the dual motor setup um it's it, it it was 320 horsepower, and there the, I didn't even really want to keep it in sport mode because it was so crazy. Hyper? <laughs> yeah, it was. Really? It was like I remember like the even the Kia people had to be like relax like on some of these roads because it was they didn't uh, want people to get ahead of themselves because you really could. I mean, there was a lot of oomph. that comment probably wasn't for you. It was for no, all the it other was, journalists that it like was not, cars around those yeah. roads. No, I, I've been on a Porsche event, <laughs> but give us uh, since you have driven both the Ionic Five yeah. and the EV6, kind of compare the two. Like if a buyer is walking in mm -hmm. and says, "I'm not sure which one," they look different. Mechanically, they're pretty much the same. How would you compare the two of them? I say if you're a taller person, you're probably going to like the Ionic 5, hmm. specifically the interior-wise. I don't know, Greg, if you if you were inside I, the Ionic 5. I drove it, yeah. So a lot issues. of room in that front, right? Like the entire console area is just completely open. Um, whereas uh, with the Kia, I think the Kia maybe feels a little bit more upscale for sure. <laughs> um, but the you have like a like a bar to your right so whereas a lot of times you know we ha you have all this space now that you don't have a traditional shifter kia sort of added this like i guess bar almost like a sports car console yes yeah. yes so um i think 
like if you you're a larger person you probably would want or a taller person you would probably would want the ionic mm-hmm. 5 over that but I, th- I i felt like the ev6 i just had a, a bit more of an upscaleness to it that um, the ionic 5 didn't that's kind mm-hmm. of fitting in with Kia's marketing. They want to be a little sportier, probably, and a little more upscale than Hyundai. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, you have a lot of uh, options. Uh, I will say, everybody everybody cares about mileage. So, mm-hmm. um, the base light uh, rear wheel drive light model um, has 167 horsepower, but gets a 232 miles of range, and that starts about uh, forty two thousand uh, dollars before tax incentives. And then um, you have uh, the Wind and GT lines. They have a, a bigger battery, and um, they come in either a, a rear drive or an all-wheel drive model. And essentially, uh, the all-wheel drive model can get a max range of 300. Or sorry, 300. Or sorry, <laughs> can get 274 miles for the all-wheel drive version. And for the rear drive version, you can get 310 miles of range, which is seven more than the Ionic. Yes. Yeah, and and about what I guess the top for the Mach E is. Mach E's a little over three hundred. It's like yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, I think uh, it's a little three o something. Something I've forgotten, but it's yeah. a little. But mm-hmm. before we leave the whole EV thing today, it's interesting that you know when. How long ago did the Bolt come out? Was that three years? Four the years? Bolt EV, that, yeah. yeah. Well, it's on the second generation. I was, yeah, yeah, and I think the first time I drove it was at the LA Auto Show, maybe five years ago. Yeah, Has it been that long. I was thinking it's seventeen. Long. Right, so sixteen that was, or seventeen is when it yeah, came out. So that broke the two hundred mile barrier. Right now we we're just eking into the three hundred mile barrier. Although I think the Hummer three twenty nine is pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. We've asked this question many times. The answer keeps changing. What it kind of this is enough mileage, enough uh, range for people to use as a second car. Where do we have to get to for the people to say, I can get by with this as my only car, I can do anything I want with it? Given the fact that, you know, yeah, I, I know there's not enough fast chargers out there and everything like that. Well, I was going to say, I don't think it's range. I think it's infrastructure. Mm-hmm. I think it's fast charging. Because I, I, what everybody should know, you know, one of the reasons why really the, the, the Ionic 5 and the EV6 are impressive EVs uh, compared to other ones is because they have the 800-volt charging architecture which is really important for the future of charging because that um, should enable you to get a charge in about 80 percent charge in about less than 20 minutes yeah. yes and you can get up to 350 kilowatt uh charging which is which means that you can use the fastest charger chargers at the fastest capacity you know if you right. h- hook up a mach-e to under uh 350 it's charger it, it'll get you 150 because right. but that's that all it can charge um, so I, I really think it's it's an infrastructure issue because 300 miles is, I mean, that's what I get in my Jeep. But if I could go to a charger, charge in less than 20 minutes, that uh, you don't need to have a charger at your house to be able to do that. Yeah, I think that Americans are not quite as savvy as you are. I think, I was just thinking my, what are, my SUV. Yeah. What about me? And yeah, what are well, you anyway you. if you're not American? So, <laughs> I'm curious. The average vehicle we get in here with a full tank of gas will go 400 plus or minus miles. Uh, you're, a gas? You're talking about? No, there's not too many that are up over. Really? Four, yeah, three. Everything's everything's in the 
three to three fifty. There's a few that are up four hundred. So you think most things? You think we're there then? Well, again, like Jess, uh, Jessica was saying, it's really all about the charging, mm. getting back on the road quickly, more so than adding more miles on. Mm-hmm. I I feel like uh, manufacturers should be uh, advertising their infotainment solutions to this problem where mm. their, their navigation is tied into it tells you where the charge where, how much charge are. your car has where the next charger is if you type in you know you want to go here it'll be like all right you can get there with this much range left or you can stop here here's a charging station here here's a charging station there that should alleviate a lot of the anxiety that a lot of people feel because like Robinson was saying, I mean, we're kind of we're approaching the point where these EVs are getting to where most gas cars are getting range-wise, mm-hmm. but you can just find a gas station anywhere, and that's why people right. don't really care because it's just like, oh, well, I'll just go fill up at every the every gas corner's station. got one or two. Yeah. That's that's actually the weakness I think of both the Ionic Five and the EV6 is that they do not have that native um, like route uh, planning. Uh, like system that Greg was talking about that like mm-hmm. Maki has that the Mach-E Polestar was, has worked very well for me. Um, I can't believe they wouldn't put that in there. You there's got to be an app for that. I'm sure you, there's an app. For you that. can oh, there is. Yeah, there is an there's app. A, yeah. There's a neat. There's a. Yeah. But you know, uh, Department of Energy savvy app people, for right? If you're, if you're, be I'm more savvy. Yeah. <laughs> I was just surprised that's not Americans. And it really is. I mean, yeah. obviously, you know, this is a type of vehicle that has, um, you know, over-the-air updates. So right. this could be something in the future. But, you know. Because it was like that with Polestar. Remember, their their yeah. it was so bare bones when it, when the first one when the first model we tested came out, and now Volvo has ha, has taken it and it's much better. The Mach E when we had the first one in, I took a, a, a moderate length trip in that, and that was extremely useful. Yeah, you know, telling me where the the charging stations were and what I and if you didn't stop at it, it's basically saying you idiot. <laughs> you know, run out. Yeah, terrific. Uh, three new EVs, and it's getting to the point where between our first drives and our road test, um, you know, we're we're doing an awful lot of electric vehicles, more than I think I thought a couple years ago we'd be doing. Mm-hmm. Thank you all. Let's move on to our, our lightning round. And this is uh, a subject that we don't normally talk about too much, which is the world of uh, motorsports. Uh, but Obviously, a lot of our viewers are very much tuned to it, and the folks over at uh, MAV-TV, that's their strong point. It was recently announced that the Las Vegas Grand Prix will join the Formula One World Championship for 2023. The night race street course will take drivers through the city and down the famous Las Vegas Strip. Along with uh, Austin and Miami, the Las Vegas Grand Prix will be the third F1 race to be held in the U.S. in a single season, which I think is an amazing turn of events. With the location along with the Formula One's newfound popularity in the U.S., do you think that the Vegas Grand Prix will become a staple of the Formula One season? Certainly spectacular looking. Uh, I would imagine it will be, uh, just because it's Vegas, and I think um, it's going to bring a lot of people to yeah, town. There's a lot of drivers who I'm sure would love to be in Vegas for you know a week. Uh, I did look at the track, and it looks kind of boring, honestly. <laughs> uh, but if you've ever been to Vegas, is that because it's so flat? Been on the streets, yeah, it's flat. Well, I mean, there are other street courses, but it's just like not like there's not really a whole lot of diversity in the track. There's a super long straight. Uh, and then there's like a couple turns, and that's about it. Uh, it's like I was just in Long Beach, and they were setting up for uh, that uh, 
the street course and like there's i mean that's a pretty interesting track and just looking at what i've seen the vegas track will be i'm just i don't think it'll be a super exciting race out like the actual racing but you know the event itself should be incredible I think that, that a boring course is a, a real detriment. I think that was actually one of the things that hurt the the Baltimore Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, potholes, maybe also. Well, they figured uh, the potholes. The problem was it made the cars go airborne when they filled them in. Well, at least they won't have that problem out there. I, I think if Vegas uh, latches onto it and they find that it ups uh, the people during uh, an off season uh, or an off time, uh, it'll probably become a staple. Uh, well, they're probably not going to Russia next year, so I would say they need somewhere to uh, hold a fill. So uh, I don't. Know. I think it'll be like everything else in Vegas. It's uh, smoke and mirrors, and it'll be super <laughs> uh, super popular. For uh, all sorts of things, Brian. It'll be super popular for a couple of years, and then all those people will move on to the next thing, like when they get a mm. another team or whatever, another event. Uh, I know, like when the NASCAR they had their championship out there, and they had burnout contests and donut contests and stuff in the right there on the strip, and that you know that was exciting. I think more so than just watching F1 cars parade down the street. You know, why do you think Long Beach has survived? I mean that. I don't even know how long the Long Beach Grand Prix has been around, but a while. <laughs> yeah, it's all about sponsorship dollars and if they want to, you know, pay for it or not. But that race conjures up an awful lot of attention. I don't know if it's just Californians like his, or more. Yeah, F1 I mean history. They're or, just kind of latching on to that history. A, of, yeah, and for F one, I'd be a lot more excited if they went back to like Watkins Glen. I think yeah, that would too. be. That I was, would. That was good. I would love to see that more so than another boring what, street what race. What is there to do in Watkins Glen? <laughs> <laughs> watch, watch cars pass one another. I mean, yeah. I don't know. You could actually get around, <laughs> which is one of my biggest problems with F one is when someone gets in a lead unless they have pit or well, have a mechanical the, problem, they win. And, it's got to be just the response that Americans have had to have had to drive for or drive to survive the Netflix mm. series um, because I've had friends now who've never been into cars or motorsport at all, and now they're all about it because the the show is just incredible. It's a great show if you haven't seen it. Um, you don't have to be into racing at all to, it's just a good to be show. into it's it. Good yeah. intro into the sport for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's online. It's on the internet. Yeah, this, right. is first, this is the first time hearing this. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, streaming service deprived. Okay, we teased at the top of the show that we were going to talk about something called the 25-year rule. And so the question for everyone at the table now is, uh, what do you think about it? There's a lot of controversy around it. And what is it? Uh, very briefly, the 25-year rule was enacted in 1988. It was called uh, the Import Vehicle Safety Compliance uh, Bill. And what it did was basically say, unless a vehicle is 25 years old, it can't be imported uh, to the U.S. Uh, without meeting all of the safety requirements. If it's older than 25 years, basically you can bring it in and not worry about some things. And I should say, this is a national rule. A lot of the states have rules on top of this particular rule. So a lot of car enthusiasts and collectors have been you know, pretty upset for the last uh, 40, 30 years plus that if they see something overseas that's really cool, they can't bring it here, they can't even bring it here, uh, under any condition, there's plenty of uh, cases where people have tried and they've been seized at the ports and scrapped. <laughs> Is it time for something like the 25-year 
ban on importing vehicles to the U.S. that we can't get here. Is it time for that to go away? What do you think about it? The mics are open. Uh, I would say there's so many vehicles now are global vehicles that it's not so much an issue. Uh, it's more of a positive thing in that so many of those cool cars that are now, you can't afford them, they're 25 years old, and they're scattered about the world. Now you can bring them here. Uh, I think it's more a good thing than a negative thing. You know, they called this the new dealer protection law, and, yeah. and, you know, people would call it yeah, because, because uh, Mercedes had a lot to do yeah, back they, in the day with getting yeah, this passed. I did a real quick read of it because I wasn't yeah. super well versed in it. But, yeah, it was like the whole gray market area yeah. where, like, when um, inflation was really high over here, they were buying cheap Correct. in Europe, bringing them over, and then reselling here for in quite the, a profit. In the 70s and early 80s, there was a booming business in the U.S. with companies that would basically federalize uh, anything that you brought over. And there were people that went to new car dealers in Germany and bought the same model that is sold here, but could get them at so much less, mm -hmm. they could ship it over, make the modifications, uh, which usually were very minor, and sell it. And everybody made a profit. And of course, that left the manufacturers over here out in the cold, and they got to the point where they said, don't even think about trying to get parts for it or bring it into our dealerships. We won't touch it. Hmm. Uh, and there were a lot of unscrupulous people at the time, too. We no. actually did. In the 80s? Uh, <laughs> no. Car dealers? There were companies <laughs> all over the country that were federalizing imported vehicles that were coming in before this law took effect. And... It takes a lot of effort. In those days, it took a lot of effort to take a European vehicle and make it meet our smog standards because we were way ahead of the Europeans mm -hmm. at that time. And they were cranking these things out like uh, chitlets. And, uh, you know, the government was going in and finding out it was all fraud and seizing it, uh, seizing their, their operations. And that led more fuel to uh, passing something like this. But today, as Brian mentioned, with almost every vehicle in the world, either meeting our emission standards or having superior standards, even though some of the parts may be different, it seems that it's the time has come for this to go away. But I have a feeling it won't. Probably not. Probably won't go away. Because like you were saying, uh, they're probably the standards are closer than they've ever been now, but there are still... Some things that are just hard, you know, harder over here than they are in Europe, and vice versa. But the amount of airbags, some of the yeah. safety systems involved, lights. Uh, light, lights. But lighting, we're finally, uh, we're finally coming up uh, in this country to lighting that they've had in Europe for quite a while. Uh, so, but there is also apparently this United Nations. Um, I don't know what you call it, apartment rule or something that has been trying to get. Uh, car makers all over the world to meet the same standards so you could ship vehicles from one to the other. And they said it's notable that the only two major countries not, on, not in agreement with this or in compliance with it are the U.S. and Canada. Hmm. And Canada has a 15-year rule, and there is a push here to get ours cut down to 15, but I don't know if it's going to happen or not. It's an interesting thing. If you've never heard of it, look up the gray market, gray market cars. Uh, they were cars in the early, uh, late 70s, early 80s that you could import and have federalized. And uh, look up um, this 25-year uh, rule. It's kind of interesting stuff. I tried to buy a, a gray market car. 
I went to. Oh, oh yeah, maybe it had been <laughs> maybe another podcast. It, it had, no, it had been federalized. Uh, it was a Mercedes. I went to Florida to see it. But what happened was, is I found out that Maryland would probably not let me uh, title it. Mm. Uh, Sounds about right. Some state rules supersede some of the national rules. Okay. Uh, anyone have a rant and rave? Something that is uh, you're really happy about or pretty negative about that's come across your way in the last uh, couple of weeks? I, well, I have something to tag along maybe it's oh sorry wait oh sorry oh no yeah you're right sorry i forgot we're in the studio, yeah, we're in the studio. We, we have sorry. these weird like devices you can't, in front you of can't us be too right. far There's from the microphone, microphone so. uh, there's a microphone here um i think my rant is that i wish that i know exactly what car i would import tomorrow if i could and it's a suzuki jiminy Mm-hmm. Ah, really? Right. Which, if our viewers, you probably, if you don't know what it is, it literally looks like you took a Wrangler and a and a G class, a G wagon, and they had a baby. And that's exactly <laughs> what it it's is. been around for a while. There's a, there aren't any old enough to get in. Well, I like the new ones. Uh, like, like and they're yeah. really cheap too. Like the yeah. like. Well, yeah, they're like twenty-five grand, maybe like U.S. dollars. Uh, they have overseas. a bunch of really cheap off-roaders over in Asia. That would be awesome. They're like uh, all those mini pickups, and they're SUVs. proper. Like yeah. they're yeah, cool. they're proper four by fours. I just my dad just forwarded me an article. So that ship that caught on fire with all oh, the uh-huh. wagons yeah. and stuff. Um, there was obviously Bentleys and Lamborghinis and all kinds of stuff, but uh, there was a report that there was a JDM Prelude SIR that was being imported uh, okay. over here that was lost, and I just feel terrible uh, for that person who or whoever was getting it or wherever it was going. It is not, it does not exist anymore. Star-crossed. Wow. wow. That, that's my rant. Anybody else? Well, before we wrap up this podcast, I do want to remind everyone about something that's coming up uh, on the weekend of April 23rd on our Motor Week episode 4133. Uh, If you listen to our podcast or you've seen a recent episode of Motor Week, you know that in mid-March we lost our longtime friend and master technician, Pat Goss, very suddenly. Uh, We have been using up the remainder of the new segments that Pat had produced for Goss's Garage. And uh, we, on the 23rd uh, weekend, we will have a tribute within that show to Pat and his uh, very long career, not only with us, but in the whole car care arena. And so those of you, and we've heard from so many tens of thousands that were huge fans of Pat Goss and learned almost everything that you know about uh, automobiles and car care from him. Um, Be sure to catch that particular episode, and I'm sure we'll have it up on our YouTube channel uh, pretty quickly after that. Yep, we we sure will. And speaking of that, if you are looking for more Motor Week and you're thinking, well, where do I see Motor Week? Uh, If you're uh, out there and you haven't done so, shame on you. But go to our MotorWeek.org website. In the upper right-hand corner at the top, there's a tab about the show. Pull it down, put in your zip code, and you'll get the information on the local public television station in your area. 
uh, time and day that you can watch us. You can also go over to our cable channel uh, partner, MAV-TV at MAVTV.com. They show us uh, somewhere around uh, 12 times a week at various times. 12 times. I think it's maybe even more than that. They're a terrific partner. We love those folks. So in between a lot of their motorsports, uh, uh, it's great to be there and be represented uh, with new car information mm -hmm. and uh, common sense uh, how to just live with your car day in, day out at MAV-TV. We're also available for streaming at, at a variety of places, uh, particularly at PBS Living. And uh, you can even go on to the PBS.org uh, website and do slash Motor Week and see the uh, most recent episodes. And it's free. It's free and on the PBS video app, yeah, which PBS if we are... You know, we don't air on your local station. That's the place to go because everything will be available for free. And it's on most smart TVs. Correct. So you can watch it on TV. So if you've got a screen, whether it's a TV, a phone, or a tablet, you can be a part of Motor Week. And that's what makes this show so terrific after 41 years. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon on another Motor Week podcast. I want to say special thanks to our audio engineer today, Jillian Cookman, our podcast producer, of course, Jessica Ray right here, and our podcast creator, Bob Mixter. Till next time, thanks for being a part of Motor Week. You've been listening to the podcast of Motor Week, television's original automotive magazine. Motor Week is made possible by Lucas Oil, TireRack.com, and RockAuto.com. For additional information on podcasts, videos, and showtimes, visit our website at MotorWeek.org. And watch Motor Week, television's longest-running automotive magazine series, each week on your local PBS station.